I have had to really untether from the idea that I have any clue about what is affordable for someone else or what is expensive for someone else. And that those ideas of like expensiveness or affordability, expensiveness and accessibility, those are not like fixed numbers. They're very shifting depending on context. The sense of wanting things to be accessible to people based on my own version of what access looks like is like a really distorted way of approaching things. What's your earliest memory of money? Mine is going with my parents to open my own bank account at our local credit union. A lot of our experiences with and stories around money come from our childhood and how we saw money handled, what we got told about money, and that stuff sticks with you. I'm Susan Bowles and you're listening to Break the Ceiling, the show where we break down unconventional strategies you can use to save time, boost your profit, and increase your operational capacity. We all have a completely unique and individual relationship to money that's influenced not by just those factors, but also the impact of every decision, good or bad, we've made with our own money and the impact of every decision, good and bad, we've seen other people make with their money. Your relationship with and access to money is impacted by your societal class, your demographics, and your generational wealth or lack thereof. And it's also influenced by the society you live in. And if you're in the US, at least, that means a capitalist society, one where power and money are often interchangeable and where the depth of inequality is stunning and only getting more dramatic. So some of the work around examining our relationship to our money also needs to examine how the system that we live in impacts that relationship because it does. And once we understand that, we can start thinking about our relationship to money in a much broader view. And we can start considering using our businesses as a means to start evening out some of that inequality. My guest today spends a lot of time thinking about, talking about, and teaching this work. Bear A. Bear is a radical life coach, social justice educator, and anti-capitalist business consultant. In work and in life, Bear actively looks at the intersections of power and privilege and will ask you to do the same, pushing both you and your business in the direction of more liberated moments. Bear and I talk about the value of doing money mindset work and how your relationship to money affects just about every area of your business. And we do a deep dive on pricing. We'll talk about how Bear approaches making their services more accessible and talk about what accessible actually means in the first place. Hi, Bear. Thanks for being here today. Oh, Susan, thanks so much for having me. So when we're dealing with money and our relationship with money, one of the most kind of common pieces of advice when you come up against issues is to do money mindset work and that that is supposed to kind of get you through your your issues. So when you come up to a bump in the road where your own mindset around money is starting to create some limitations, you get told to go, you know, do money mindset work. But that could mean a lot of different things. So how do you think about money mindset work? Yeah, I, I love this question because how I tend to work with my clients around money and, and uh, money mindset I think is is maybe a little bit different than some of the, um, you know, standard uh, online business advice. So the way that I tend to um, orient my clients around uh, money mindset is is that I encourage them to think about 
uh, specifically like their lineages of belief around money and work. So rather than saying sort of like, what is your personal, you know, what are your personal limiting beliefs or, or you know, whatever, actually really trying to trace those uh, money mindset issues back in time and being able to say, you know, what did I learn about money or work from my parents? What did I learn about work or money from my siblings? What have I learned about work or money from, uh, you know, my grandparents? Like basically all the sort of people around you that um, that have had an influence on how you, um, how you, how each of us has come to think about money. And then from there to really think, and what is it that I actually believe, right? So <laughs> I tend to work with people who have more of a, um, you know, have who care about social justice, who care about um, sort of being in uh, ethical alignment inside their business. And so frequently they find themselves at odds sort of with the typical business advice and their own kind of heart, their own ethics, their own um, inclination around these things. And so these old ideas that may have come passed down through our family line, through our lineages, um, that there's there's frequently like a deeper truth underneath that that you already know to be true, right? That you that you're holding on to, that you're like, oh yeah, I my parents taught me that. For example, the only way that I could be secure in my life is to have a nine to five job with a salary. That may be a belief. That's that's an example from uh, someone else, not from me. My own lineage, my own money lineage stuff is different than that. But that that is a really common one, I think. Yeah, that's and, very solidly my family lineage. <laughs> yeah, right. And I think it's I think it's a really common one that the that the old and I think especially for folks in small you know who are small in small businesses who are working for themselves that there can be this really pervasive sense that unless you have, you know, a salary job that's regular, that's coming from someone else, you know, who is employing you, that there will never be anything but lack and scarcity. But that if you dig a little deeper, there there may be a sort of deeper truth, a deeper knowing underneath that that says, mm, maybe it's possible that I could make enough money for my business. Maybe it's possible that my job was never really that secure at all. <laughs> and so really starting to, to kind of like dig in and, and see what else might be possible in addition to or instead of these these deeper sort of like familiarly passed on ideas around money. Yeah, I think that's so interesting because so much of how we get kind of indoctrinated into money comes from our family and the how they are teaching it about teaching us about it because we don't teach money in schools or in like common culture money is not one of the things that we teach so most of your um, understanding of money and how you relate to money comes from your family structure or your childhood relationship mm -hmm. with money so I think it's really interesting to go all the way you know all the way back and understand how far back that generational stuff kind of tracks back to yeah yeah and i think that the thing that's really that i think can be really fun about that too for me is that we can also then sort of look at the good stuff like what 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 things that what beliefs about money that your family had might actually serve you you know um i think of my own you know my own life my uh, my parents um 
I grew up sort of working class and working poor, and uh, and my parents always had many jobs. <laughs> my mom always had three jobs, and so a belief that you know, so you know, because of that, I have tons of kind of scarcity patterning. Um, around money, but one of the things I also got is um, is the belief that that I can be really scrappy and really resourceful, um, and that if there is money available, I can go out and find it. I can go out and get it, and that's a belief that like I saw my parents doing that through my whole childhood. That they were always sort of, um, you know, hustling for the next thing, and and that um, that I can I can sort of choose. Each of us can choose. Like, what are the pieces of that money mindset lineage that you want to hold on to? What are the pieces that you want to amplify? What are the pieces that you want to sort of um, lean into? And what are the pieces that that maybe aren't serving you or, or, or aren't relevant for you that you could really let go of? Mm. I love the idea of just letting go of it. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I, I, easier said than done exactly, I feel like but exactly. also feels very freeing <laughs> yeah right exactly I think it's definitely not a um any kind of mindset work is is never sort of like one and done right you don't just like have a new thought and then poof the old thought never returns it's like it's a it's a repetitive practice you have to think the new thought you know 10,000 times before it sticks around so yeah, definitely um, a, a lifelong, lifelong work, lifelong labor. So there's real value, often even real tangible financial value to doing work on your own relationship with money, your mindset around money, because our relationship with money impacts so much of what we do as business owners, how we price our services, how we decide to invest our time, our resources, you know, it affects who we choose to work with. So talk to me a little about that. You know, how do you approach the value of working on your mindset or your relationship with money? Yeah, I think... I don't have any sort of specific dollar amounts in terms of like return on investment for working on money mindset that I can point to. Um, but I have really seen the ways that my own kind of uh, ideas around. So let me backtrack a little bit. <laughs> I have had real uh, sort of concern about wanting to make sure that my work is financially accessible to anyone who wants to have access to it, right? And that's because of my sort of social justice analysis, because of my orientation to my work and the world. I want to make sure that that um, that my work is, is available and that money isn't a barrier that keeps people away from being able to work with me. And many of my clients have this same kind of inclination of like really caring that other people can access it. Um, but then it, it, because of that, I have had to do in my own, you know, on my, in terms of my own money mindset work, have had to really um, untether from the idea that I have any clue <laughs> about what is affordable for someone else or what is expensive for someone else. And that those ideas of like expensiveness or affordability, expensiveness and accessibility um, are not, uh, those are not like fixed numbers. They're very uh, shifting depending on context. And so for the longest time, I was really stuck in a place of um, sort of putting a max cap on how much I could charge for anything. So for many years in business, I, I felt like I couldn't charge more than $1,000. I couldn't charge uh, more than $900. Like the, I had this this block in my mind that if I charged $1,000 for something, that it was just like this astronomical number that no one on the planet could possibly afford. 
And it was actually a friend of mine who's also in business who suggested that I just take my my regular package and instead of um, raising my my hourly rate for it, just double the package, like offer twice as many sessions and therefore twice as much money. And that was the thing that sort of like got me over that mental block around charging more than $1,000. And I just was like, okay, well, just as an experiment, I'm going to put this like bigger, more expensive package on my website. And I was totally floored that suddenly many people were interested in giving me... <laughs> giving me $1,800. And I was, just, you know, I was flabbergasted because to my mind, that was a number that was just so expensive, so unaffordable. Um, and that no one, because it was expensive to me, I assumed that it was expensive to everyone. Um, mm. And that's, it's just not true. <laughs> uh, for many people, that number is like a totally doable number. And in fact, now I charge a lot more than that, right? So that was several years ago that I, you know, it finally broke through that $1,000 barrier. But um, it turns out that like my ideas of what's expensive or accessible is really rooted in my own lived experience with money. And that many, many other people are having a wildly different experience around money. And so the the sense of like, wanting things to be accessible to people based on my own version of what access looks like is like a really sort of, um, it's a really distorted way of approaching things. And so instead now I'm sort of like, okay, uh, let me, let me base things on facts rather than on my feelings about money. Um, and, and it's, I mean, I, you know, I could go in and do the calculations of like <laughs> how much more money I'm making now that I don't have this sort of internal block around how much I can charge. And, and now it's like, yeah, I can charge $5,000. I could charge $10,000. You know, I could charge whatever amount. And I know that for someone that's a doable number. Mm, I like that. And I think that's a really common scenario for a lot of business owners, especially service business owners, where the pricing is essentially random. I yeah. mean, there's no like everybody's packages and what they're offering and what their experiences is, is so disparate that there's really no way to compare apples to apples. So how you choose to price your services is really sort of arbitrary. And yes. because it's, you know, we're not pricing widgets. There's no like comparison shopping, really. And so I think in situations like that, how you view money and your own approach to money can be such a limiting factor for you, you know, especially as you're getting to um, what for you might be kind of the next, the quote unquote, next level. You know, I think everybody has a next level of I couldn't possibly charge any more than X or I can't imagine making any more than this amount of dollars. Right. Um, that there, there is a number to you that is unfathomable, wherever that is on your, like on the actual number scale um, and being able to kind of process that and come to terms with it can be something that allows you to get past that as a limitation for yourself. Yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, you're really so right that it is, it is really arbitrary and, you know, I have a couple of thoughts there. One is that I think so the way that I, you know, and I teach a whole online course about this, but the way that I, I advise people to set their prices is actually based on how much money you personally need um, rather than what you think other people can pay or what other people are charging for similar services, but to actually really like crunch your own numbers and go like, 
how much money do I need to live the life that I'm trying to live? Like how much money do I need to be able to pay my taxes, save for retirement, you know, go on a trip whenever traveling is a thing we can do again, (laughs) whatever the kinds of like, sort of like, like how much money do I need in order to have a life that's beautiful, that has space and money to, to include beauty in it. That's the sort of criteria that I look at. And then how much, how many hours can I work? How many clients do I think I'll have? And then basically just like do that math of, how much money do I need divided by how many hours can I work or how many clients do I think I can get? Um, and then that gives you sort of a, a starting point for like your base hourly rate. Um, and I, I think the thing to me that's really freeing about doing things that way is that I'm not personally interested in like perpetual financial growth for its own sake. I actually think that that's like, uh, it's part of why the world is so inequitable is because we've prioritized um, constant churning growth forever. Um, and, and instead to me, I'm really interested in like figuring out what enough feels like, what is a, what is a good, like beautiful, rich life look like? And, and by rich, I don't mean financially rich. I mean like, you know, rich with, with texture and, and with experiences. What does that look like? And how much money do I need to, to have that? And then, and then just like being able to find contentment there and not always needing to like reach for the next thing, not always needing to sort of like keep, keep growing, keep, you know, striving, which I think is, is in real, um, you know, sort of harsh contrast to a whole lot of the, the, um, the, the standard uh, business advice and money mindset advice and probably some money mindset coach out there would tell you that my idea that I should stop making I should I, that I should like not constantly be growing as my own money mindset issues but <laughs> whatever <laughs> well I also think that I mean there's just so much like social and cultural programming that choosing to be content at whatever your enough is can be a real struggle because you're constantly having to fight all of those external messages that says, you know, you should be the next Amazon. Right. <laughs> when, quite frankly, he has more money than any any country. It's, uncon- <laughs> it's unconscionable. Like, it is. Uh, that is the best. <laughs> I'm like, why do you why do you need that money? Yeah. Like what what could you possibly be like? It's so life changing. And so like you could have such a, an amazing impact on the world using that for literally anything else. Right. Like do do anything else with it. Yep. Um, but that's, you know, that's the message that we get sold. And I, I'm sure you're right that there is somebody out there that says that, you know, that's a that's a money mindset issue. But I think it's also c- comforting, at least for me to mm. say, you know, here's here's where enough is you know that's good i'm comfortable there i'm happy there um and so i don't i think it's only a limitation if you intentionally choose it to be a limitation right yeah and i think for so many small business owners like it it you know we show up to our work with all of our kind of self-worth issues all of our trying to sort of get our uh, unmet needs met through our work and and that sense of like i i feel like there's such a correlation between i never have enough money and and i can never be good enough i am never good Mm -hmm. enough um 
And that really, for me, part of the practice of, of learning to sit with what enough looks like financially is also a practice of looking what looking at what enough looks like for me as a human, like how how much how much effort, how much goodness, how much, you know, kindness and compassion is enough? Like, at what point can I sort of say, I'm okay, just as I am? I have enough, I have this amount of money is okay, just as it is, right? I'm okay as a person, just just like this. And I don't always have to be sort of striving for greater self-improvement. which of course is really tricky. I'm a coach. I help people with that's self, like, that's a really hard. That's, that's right? a really hard place to sit. <laughs> I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really tricky. It's really tricky to 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 just be okay with who you are and to and to let. For me, the the practice of of a lot of my money mindset work is is about finding that enoughness in all aspects, not just financially. Yeah, I like the uh, I like the approach of it as a practice that this is something that you are constantly practicing, not something that you can go and, okay, I'm gonna go work on my, I'm gonna work on my mindset right now. I'm gonna work on my money mindset and check the box and I'm done. I'm good for a while. <laughs> like, because right. it's just not, that's just not how it works in, you know, in real life. We don't, we might get past one block or one mindset issue for, this specific scenario where we are accomplishing it and the next time that you run into that issue when you you know decide if you take a next level or you go into a different area um it comes rearing back up yeah (laughs) so i love the idea of having it as a practice that it's just kind of constantly working on sitting with it and being okay with it yeah yeah, definitely. I know as you were saying that I was imagining us doing like um money mindset workouts, like little like dumbbells, <laughs> like pumping our little money mindset dumbbells. <laughs> but I feel like that's, you know, that's the approach to so much of the kind of personal development work, mindset or otherwise, that comes with being a business owner is the message is that if you go and you work with a coach or you check the box and you do your, you know, you go off and do your money mindset work that it's done. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of being a business owner, so much of that is an evolution and it's a journey and it's really only done when you die. (laughs) There's not really a, there's not really a done to it, which I think is a hard, at least for me, it's really hard place to sit that there's no like, I mean, I'm I'm an Enneagram three, so I'm very achievement oriented. <laughs> um, it, it's a real like sitting with enoughness and sitting with um, trying to readjust to not being as achievement oriented um, is very difficult for me. So <laughs> it's something that I am always working on. Yeah, I understand that definitely. Um, I'm I'm an Enneagram eight, so I also have some of that driving <laughs> yeah. force. Um, <laughs> Which I think is, you know, is an asset in business in a lot of ways. But yeah, I think it, it's it's both it's a you know there's a paradox there of of how challenging it can be to really sit with ourselves and sit with sit with enoughness to be to try to find contentment with what what we have and who we are. Um, and there's also a sort of freedom to to knowing that that it's that that it really is never done. Um, because then it means uh, then it means I don't have to run as fast. It means I don't have to like work quite as hard because I'm like, okay, well, it's not it's not like once I like, you know, surmount this obstacle that that then there are no more obstacles ever. It's like so I can, you know, sort of take my time a little bit more and be mm-hmm. a little um, 
a little easier on myself as I do the work because it's not, you know, it's not as urgent as, um, as my heart, mind, nervous system might sometimes make <laughs> it feel like it is. Yes. It's that time of year. Time to set some new goals or consider your New Year's resolution. And if you're like a lot of business owners I know, you might be thinking that this is the year you're gonna get your shit together when it comes to your money. You're gonna start reviewing that P&L statement you get every month. You're gonna be more intentional about how you spend and closely tracking the ROI you're getting. You're gonna get clear on exactly how you're making money and how you can make more of it without working yourself into the ground. Now, if you're both nodding your head and feeling the anxiety rise in your chest as I describe these financial goals, I see you. We all have the best of intentions about how we're going to manage our business finances, but few people actually follow through on learning how to manage their business's money or execute the financial plans they create. You want to feel like you're on top of your money stuff but it's tough to climb over all the questions and reports and bank accounts and spreadsheets. That's where I come in. I help you think like a CFO. Working together, you'll learn the skills you need to confidently make database decisions about how to spend your money and how to structure your business so you make more. You'll build a more resilient business that's efficient and easy to run and you'll create meaningful financial processes so you're never caught with your pants down again. Think Like a CFO is a six-month accelerator, online workshop, and coaching program that will teach you to think about your business like a CFO would. We'll cover six core topics, including risk and resilience, investing in your business, scaling sustainably, and your relationship with money. You'll also get dedicated implementation time and live support so you don't get stuck on the details or the execution. And you'll get a clear path to true small business financial literacy so you can connect your money to every other aspect of your work, from daily operations to long vacations. Think Like a CFO is enrolling right now. And when you register before December 31st, you'll also get my course, Not Rocket Finance, which is the perfect primer for Think Like a CFO. To find out more about Think Like a CFO and finally get your business shit together, go to scalespark.co slash CFO. So let's kind of talk a little bit about money mindset work more in depth. So there's a lot of money mindset people out there that, you know, really push the kind of manifestation, this idea that if you think about something hard enough, or you can, you know, will it into being that the money you want, or the money you need will just kind of show up for you. And maybe it will, <laughs> you know, there's, there's research that says, you know, committing to a goal makes you more likely to accomplish that goal generally. But that money won't necessarily show up for everyone. So if they, if it doesn't show up for them, are they just not doing it right? Or are they not manifesting hard enough? Uh, what's your what's your approach on that kind of manifestation aspect that is really, um, I think, ingrained in a lot of the money mindset and even just some coaching uh, yeah. practices? Yeah, thanks, thanks for this question. I feel like it's, um, it's such an important conversation for us to be having in the, the sort of self-employment online business space. I think to me, the place where a lot of manifestation teaching misses the mark is that it puts a, an overemphasis on, on individual agency. 
Um, and it totally sort of decontextualizes us out of the systemic and cultural contexts that we live inside of, right? So all of us are uh, alive in this human form. And for most of us in the United States and, and probably in lots of places in Europe, I don't know where all your listeners are, but um, right, we're all sort of, most of us are functioning inside of capitalism. And there are these, these real sort of systemic issues <laughs> that make it more possible for um, for some of us to quote unquote manifest money than others of us, um, and I, I think there's there's a real sort of uh, tendency to think that like my abundance mentality is what made me wealthy or is what made someone wealthy. But if we really look at it, it's like okay, what typically makes people wealthy is uh, whiteness, being white, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, being male. Uh, you know, like uh, having grown up with family wealth, like having access to a family that is already wealthy, like those are the those are the main factors that make it likely that someone uh, is able to, quote unquote, manifest money. Um, And that, you know, the flip side of that, I think, is that there's a lot of like victim blaming that happens around poverty. And this idea that a poverty mentality or a scarcity mentality, scarcity mindset is what causes people to be poor. But if we actually look at the demographics, if we actually look at the cultural context, it's like being a person of color is something that is, you know, makes you more likely to uh, to be poor. And also, you know, the sort of historical access to wealth are the those are actually the predictors of someone's access to money or access to wealth. And so I think there's a real sort of uh we tend the the money mindset world the the especially the sort of manifestation law of attraction um brand of things tends to really turn a blind eye to this cultural context and instead says you know well your individual behavior your individual thoughts are the things that draw money to you um but in reality it's it's not it's not that way right if we look at the facts it's just not true yeah i think this is especially it's really, really apparent um, if you look at like the world of VC capital um, and who gets invested in. And I think I saw something that like there are companies that have gotten VC capital that, you know, it's one company and they get more VC capital than all female founders or all people of color founders yep. um, in an entire year. And yep. the... Um, access to capital is a very real issue when you're talking about trying to grow a company, particularly if you're growing, you know, a, a big company, less of a, you know, small business. But even in small business, you know, your ability to access credit or capital or loans to get started is heavily impacted by your demographics and your personal situation, yeah. which is heavily impacted by the system. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I think I didn't know those statistics, but I'm totally not surprised by that at all. Um, I mean, when you when you look at you can look at there's so many um, studies around this, around the sort of racial wealth gap and how wealth has accumulated in families over time. And it's really I mean, it's it's stark, even adjusted for all other factors like having a college degree and, you know, education level and that kind of thing. Um 
race is just a predictor. It just is. Um, it's a it's a really strong predictor of of wealth and and sort of net worth in the United States anyway. And um, I think the the tendency to want to overlook that or downplay that is a real um, it does a real disservice to all of us. And I think it's uh, it you know at at best it's a sort of innocent overlooking, and at worst it's like a real intentional. Um, downplaying and victim blaming that uh that people leverage to make more money <laughs> mm-hmm. which is yeah, just absolutely. you know it's just yeah it's really i think we we really there's a lot there's a lot of unlearning that we need to do as a as a culture and and uh you know as a culture as a whole and and specifically in the online business space there is work that is i think specific for us to do around challenging that idea that um that if you just think hard enough that you can you can get the money that you need. And then if you are struggling financially, that it's your own fault. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. So talk to me, a, take take me a little bit in that direction. So what are some things um, that we could consider or take into account either when we're working on our own relationship with money or in our businesses, especially if we want to work towards kind of generally doing less harm or orienting ourselves towards justice as a business owner? Yeah, I I, I have so many thoughts about this. <laughs> you know, the first, uh, the first thing that I, again, I, I think I said this already, but the, the first thing I really recommend people do is to start by setting your rates based on what you need, not based on anything else. Um, and I think that that's, it's a, it's a real sort of, um, I mean, it is a it is really like a sort of anti-capitalist idea to say I should charge based on the money that I need to get, not based on the money that I think I could I can acquire. Um, this is very very contradictory to the common you know charge what you're worth kind of. Oh yeah. Um, pitch. Yes, and I I mean that that pitch the charge what you're worth worth pitch I um. I have some some real com- controversial, perhaps. Feel free to about rant. That. <laughs> We're okay with rants here. Great. Well, my personal rant on that is that <laughs> what you're that that taking worth out of the equation um, is so important and is so useful um, because then it it makes it so that when you charge based on the money that you need, it creates a sort of like energetic clarity. Wherein if I, so if I know I need to charge $200 an hour, just pulling some numbers out of the air, right? If I need to charge $200 an hour in order to get the money that I need in order to uh, live the life that I'm trying to live, right? That then when I go onto a sales call with a client, I'm not having any kind of like internal, like hemming and hawing about, am I allowed to charge this much? You know, are they going to think I'm whatever by asking for this amount of money? Because I know this is just what I need and I'm allowed to get what I need. Right. So doing some of that work around feeling like you're allowed to have what you need, that may be part of your money mindset work. Mm -hmm. It has been part of mine. But it's really freeing to know that my numbers are not actually arbitrary. They're different maybe than somebody who lives in a city with a higher cost of living. They're different than somebody who has like three kids. I don't have any kids, right? So like my rates are, are based on living in a small city, single, childless, like, you know, a pretty low overhead. Um, and I charge what I charge because that's the money that I need to have the life that I'm trying to have. And that really, um, the sense of like what your worth is, 
tying that to money, I think, is so deeply damaging for our psyches. And to be able to just like untangle that a little bit and go like, okay, this is the money that I need. And that doesn't have anything to do with my worth. My worth as a human is like innate and inherent. And, you know, my, my worth as a human is a birthright and it has nothing to do with my prices. Yeah, I love that. Uh, so let's, are there, are there other things you think we should be thinking about or taking into consideration as we work on our own, uh, relationship to money or just practices we can put in place as business owners? Oh yeah. Other thought, other business practices. Um, you know, I, when I think about like causing less harm, my constant, um, my constant refrain to my clients is that, um, <laughs> which I think is also like a little bit radical and a little bit um, potentially controversial, is that it's really important, actually, if you're trying to have an equitable business, it's really important to have uh, all the things that you offer also be available for free to people who need them, <laughs> which is like a wild thing to say, because there's so much messaging about like not undercharging and um, not sort of uh, underselling yourself. Right. But I'm not saying you need to like give all your work away for free. But the idea that like if you're trying to create a business that has accessibility, like financial accessibility built into it, that accessibility has to go all the way down to zero dollars. And I'll explain sort of how I how I make that work financially. I'm like, I want to hear the logistics of this. Like you've got (laughs) you've got me hooked. Like I am interested in the logistics of this. So talk to me about how that how you implement that. Right. So the, the basic the basic framework for this is that like no matter how cheap something is, it will always be too expensive for someone, right? So I, I, I witnessed this last summer. I ran um, freely my online course about, about pricing your work, and it was $19 for a 90-minute webinar, live webinar, 90 minutes, 20 bucks, right? And I thought to myself, this is great. This is a number. It's super low, you know, low barrier to entry. Most people I'm like, I feel able- like that's probably pretty accessible for most folks. Right. You would you would think, right? Or at least except, I would think. I, I also thought, except that then I put it out there and I got not a ton of messages, but I got a handful of messages from people that said, hey, I don't get paid for two more weeks. Is there any way I can like do this for free or any way I can whatever, right? Um hey, I really, you know, and I put, I always, because it, because it is the practice that I have, I always sort of put like, if this number is not accessible for you, let me know and we'll work it out. And I was surprised at the number of people for whom $20 was just not a number they could reach. And so I think there's a real sort of, um, I see this all the time, people do things sliding scale, and it's like, it's 40 to $60 sliding scale. And I'm like, I, I see your heart in that. Like, I see the intention in that. But like, in reality, for most people who could pay $40, they can also they pay, can pay $60. 60. Yeah, exactly. And for people who can't pay 40, like they may not be able to pay five. Um, and so creating a wider spread that allows for people who really, truly don't have enough to, to be able to say, I want access to this service or this this class or this whatever, um, and I can't pay for it or I can pay very little for it. Um, then also you have to do the So the logistics of it is that you have to then charge a high enough rate, generally speaking, that your clients who have access to more money are sort of like on the back end subsidizing the people with less. Right. So I have clients yep. who pay me like $350 an hour and I have clients who pay me $35 an hour because that's all they can afford. And those two numbers average out to a rate for me that works out hourly. It like works out so that that is like covering my needs. 
Um, mm. And and I my experience of you know for a long time I tried to do or for a while anyway I was trying to do sort of sliding scale, letting people opt into paying more or paying less. But the problem is that because of because of capitalism, everybody feels like they never have enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even yep. people with a lot of money, right? There's there's um some of my favorite statistics about this. There's a study, um, I think from ooh, I always forget if it I think it's from Harvard Business School, interviewed people who have $25 million or more in assets. So like hyper wealthy people, right? And then asked them, do you feel financially secure? And like two thirds of the respondents to this survey said, no, these people with $25 million in assets. What are you doing with $25 million? (laughs) Like, can you take a little bit of the cash out of your, I'm going to roll around in cash room. Right. And like maybe put that in a savings account so that you feel financially secure. Right. I know. And then the wild thing to me is that the the follow-up question to that was, if if no, like if you don't feel financially secure, estimate about how much more money you would need to have in order to feel financially secure. And the the average like a dollar amount was about 20% more than they already have, which to me is just like so like illustrative that like we don't feel I think that that rings so true for me. Like I frequently when I feel like I don't have enough, it's I don't yeah, feel like 20% more. Exactly. Like I don't need to like <laughs> I don't need tw- I don't need twice as much money as I currently have, but if I just had a little bit more, then I would feel okay. If I just had 20% more, then I would be able to relax. Then I would feel financially secure, right? Yeah. But I think that sense of scarcity and j- always wanting just a little bit more chases us through, you know, all the sort of income uh, brackets. <laughs> Yeah, that is so interesting. And so asking people to opt into paying more goes directly counter to that sense of scarcity. Who would opt into wanting to pay more for a service if they could pay less? But you less? could get it for less. You d- nobody wants to do that. <laughs> no, you're right. So, so unless you're <laughs> unless you're operating in and I I've seen sliding scale be successful for people who are, you know, like really sort of like politicized healers, people who are operating in a community of activists or people who are like, their whole community is sort of on board and is already having this conversation about wealth wealth inequality. Like maybe in some of those kinds of circumstances, a sliding scale can work because, because there may be enough people who are financially comfortable, who are politicized, who would choose to pay more. But the vast majority of people with money don't have that kind of political analysis and aren't opting into paying more. No. So all of that is to say that the the way that I have sort of like rectified this issue is by not giving them, not like making it a choice that they have to opt into. I just say my rate is, you know, the rate is X. And if that's not affordable for you, let me know. And so then for everybody who that number is affordable for, they just pay it. They just say it. They yeah. just they just pay it, no big deal, you know, whatever. And then for the people for whom that number is prohibitive, then they can send me an email and say, hey, this doesn't work for me or whatever. And, you know, I typically tend to, I could tell you more about the sort of like actual backend logistics of how I make that work if that's interesting for people, but yeah. I I am, personally, I am very interested. So are you... <laughs> Um, when people reach out and they say, hey, that's not accessible, are they reaching out and saying, hey, that's not accessible, but X would be? Are they saying, hey, that's not accessible, what kind of a deal can you do <laughs> for me? You, you know what I mean? Like, how yes. is that? 
How do you approach that response? Because I think the the nuance there is really where the success of these sorts of programs happens. And it's not necessarily in the logistics of like, how do you set up a sliding scale? It's more about how do you communicate and address the nuances in that kind of a system? Yes. Yeah, I think you're totally right there. It's so I do it. I use a different approach depending on what I'm selling. So if I'm selling something that's like an online course where it's like one to many, I set up a discount code on my website that is um, that's generally made publicly available. So especially if it's an online course that like uh, any number, like uh, there's an infinite number of spots in the class or a pretty high number of spots in the class. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't make people even email me about it. I just say you don't want to bother with the logistics. I don't want to bother. You with think the- this is you? Just put in that. Code. Here's the code. Here's here's how you use it. And I typically will say like uh, I'll typically give a half off code and a and a totally free code. Um, and then I usually include my Venmo information. And I'm like, if you want to pay me a different amount besides like full price, half price, or zero, you can Venmo me the difference and just like include a note that says here's what the difference is, so that people have a little bit more control if they're like, well, I can't pay fifty bucks, but I could pay twenty bucks. And I'm I'm like, great, you can send me that. So. I tend to, to let let people do that that way. And then when I'm working with one-on-one clients, you know, I all of those financial conversations are happening um, are happening, you know, live on a sales call. And so uh, I don't negotiate. It's not a negotiation, right? It's not like how good of a deal can you get from me? That's not the conversation that we're having. <laughs> um, but when people, when we get on the call and I say, you know, we decide we're going to, we would like to work together and I say, okay, here's how it works. It's six months. It's, you know, it's $2,100. Here's the, the deal. Um, you know, here's what the payment plan would look like. How does that, you know, would that work for you, basically? And then when someone says, you know, that's really sort of out of my budget, the question that I ask is, what is a number that would feel doable for you per month? Like, if we're going to go on a payment plan monthly for the next six months, like, what is a number that would feel doable for you? And then usually people say something that's like, (laughs) just a little bit less than what the regular price is. And I'm like, (laughs) great, I'm like, great, totally fine. Let's do it. Let's go, you know? And then sometimes it's like, you know, like I said, I have clients who pay me much, much less, like, you know, pay me 10% of my full price rate. And, and I have enough clients who are paying at the highest end of things. And that highest end of things is set high enough by me, like I looked at the numbers and was like, how high does that number need to be in order to give away some spots for zero or to give away some spots for very little. Um, And so then I'm able to do that without any resentment. You know, I don't feel resentful of my clients who pay me less because the clients who are paying me more subsidize that. They're paying you enough. Exactly. So do you have specific, um, like, do you have a specific set of, you know, lower price clients that you, you know, you've adjusted your capacity so you know you can take like two free clients with five full-time clients or whatever it is. Do you have a, a set number of lower price clients that you know you can take and you can't really take any more than those at a given time? Yes. Or how did you approach that? I I have those numbers and I have not had to use them. Like I actually uh, tend to, it tends to just, 
stay in balance. I haven't mm. ever had to turn any, I haven't yet, maybe after I talk on this <laughs> podcast about the fact that, um, <laughs> the fact that I like will work with you for whatever price you can pay, um, more people will, will utilize that. But I think that for, for the most part, um, it just sort of works itself out. I don't know how else to describe it, but it, it like, that has not felt like a stressor. I think that's a thing that, that people get. Well, I think people worry about that of mm -hmm. if I offer this at a more accessible price that, you know, we're indoctrinated into the capitalist system that if people can get something for less, they're going to get something for less. And so the concern is always, you know, what if what if nobody can pay the full price? Or what if it totally throws everything out of alignment? Um, and so it's interesting that that hasn't it hasn't happened for you and it just kind of naturally comes to this equilibrium which is interesting yeah i mean i can't really i can't really explain it except to say that that's uh that is how it has worked out for me um i'm not you know i'm not sure maybe it wouldn't work out for everyone but in general i think most for most of my clients it works out and i think frequently our own sense of like no one could possibly pay that number is the thing mm -hmm. that like gets in the way yeah. of us actually charging the number that would make it possible for us to then be able to give away some lower cost spots. Well, it's interesting when we talk about different strategies for like pricing for accessibility and sliding scales and all of those sorts of things. It's interesting because so much of it comes like bumps up against both our money mindset issues as a provider and the money mindset issues of the people receiving sometimes as well yes. and that it's it is unusual like the structure of that the offer the the idea of pricing for more accessibility is so um unusual to us still that um it's just interesting the nuances that yeah. kind of go into that kind build trying to build and structure your offerings that way yeah yeah, and I think, you know, two things. One, uh, I have had very occasionally, I have had somebody come come into a sales call who has seen this this thing on my website that says if you can't afford it, like let's we'll talk and make it work. And they have come in like ready to play hardball and are trying to negotiate with me. Mm. Um, and I don't work with those people. I, yeah, just I mean, say, I imagine that's probably I, a pretty good red flag for you. <laughs> yeah, I just say this, this is this is I don't think that this is a good fit. I don't think that we're like actually on the same page about these things. And so then it doesn't I don't have to do the sort of like hardball negotiation because that's not because they're not a good fit in other like that desire to do that shows me that they're not a good fit for me in other ways. Right. And for the clients for whom that's not the approach that they're taking, I think it it. I mean, the feedback that I've gotten is that the way that I do things with money is actually really healing for people to like come into a space with somebody who's like, I'm not judgmental about the fact that lots of people don't have money and can't afford my regular rates. I don't have any, um, I don't have any sense of being sort of like, you know, this like uh, benevolent, uh, you know, be benevolent being from upon high bestowing my, you know, bestowing, bestowing your gracious knowledge upon on the peons. The, exactly. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't approach it in that way. I just am sort of like, here's the, I understand the reality of what it's like to be a person inside of capitalism. I know what it's like to not have enough. And I don't think that that should be like, it just is so matter of fact to me that I don't think that should be a barrier for us to be able to get the services and the the things that we need. And so, um, 
you know, I think people frequently, much less often than the hardball negotiators, my clients and my potential clients, I think come with a lot of like guilt and shame about not being able to pay me my full rate. And, and I think it's really, um, it can be really transformative to offer people um, that they don't, that like, I mean, you know, I'm like, you can feel whatever you want to feel, but like, don't feel like, <laughs> don't feel like that on account of me. <laughs> you know, like I'm not, I, oh, I, do, I do not want you to feel guilt or shame. Like that is not how I, you know, it's, that's not what I'm going for here at all. And I think it's really, um, it's really freeing and really healing for people to have an experience around money that, that really like, um, doesn't penalize them for not having enough. Yeah, I think that's, it's very um, interesting because yeah, as a culture and I think probably every business owner I've ever spoken to has some sort of guilt or shame around money because uh, it's just kind of drilled into us. And especially as business owners, the expectation is that like we understand our money shit and we're, we got it all together. Yep. Um, and that there's so much of that wrapped up in our finances and how we think about money and how we approach money that I could absolutely see the um, kind of untethering <laughs> Yeah. to be super freeing and just kind of a huh, yeah huge sigh of relief that it's not that kind of transaction it really is and I, and i think you know the other thing that people my especially like students in my online course around money tend to worry about is like um are people going to take advantage of me? Like one of the other strategies that I use is like offering long-term no interest payment plans because frequently for people, the problem is not that they'll never have the money. They just like have a cash flow issue and they don't have it right now, right? Um, And there's a lot of concern about people like backing out on their payment plans or screwing you over. They said they were gonna pay it and then they didn't pay it. And I, I really think something about this approach is so deeply humanizing that it takes people out of that kind of transactional mentality of feeling like they're, my clients, I think by and large, do not feel like they're trying to like pull one over on me or like that kind of, the way that capitalism pits us against each other is is so extractive and always trying to sort of, we're always all trying to get the most for the least, right? I'm like, I'm yeah. trying to get the most money from you for the least amount of my effort. And you're trying to get the most amount of my knowledge and expertise for the least amount of your money, right? Like that's the that's the game that we're taught to play inside of capitalism. But when I say, hey, I'm gonna charge you the number that's based on what I need. And if you can't do that, that's okay. It takes us, it just like, it just dissolves that kind of transactional energy. And then people don't screw me over. <laughs> <laughs> like people, I just—I mean, isn't that's kind of the fundamental philosophy of being an anti-capitalist in general—is just kind of a general "let's not be dicks to each other" kind of <laughs> philosophy. I mean, really, that's exactly I mean, that's kind of the fundamental premise behind it. Yes, exactly. Let's just not be dicks to each other. And when I'm not a dick to my clients about money, then turns out they don't want to be a dick back to me. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sure there is a much more philosophical way to go about explaining it, but that's kind of the premise. That's the, that's the gist. I I don't disagree. All right. I think that is a perfect place to go ahead and wrap it up. So where can our listeners find you if they want to connect or learn more about what you do? Yes. So my website is bearcoaches.com. And that's where they can find all the information about my business consulting services and also freely the online course about pricing your work, um, which has it has three parts, sort of one about um, 
one about actually how to set your rates. The second part is about um, accessibility structures. And I t go into all the kind of backend logistics of how to set up accessible structures for pricing. And then the third one is is all about money mindset and, and sort of escaping scarcity mentality in a way that's not, you know, that's not aligned with oppressive norms. And then I'm on, uh, I'm on Instagram. And that's sort of my main social media hub. I have a lot of video content there. So if you, <laughs> if you like hearing me talk, you can hear a whole lot more of me talking <laughs> on my Instagram. <laughs> um, and awesome. That's, my Instagram handle is just uh, my name. So at Bear A Bear with an underscore at the end of it. Cool. Thank you so much for being here. This was such an interesting and I think at least for me, a super valuable conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It was super fun to get to come in and talk with you today. I love the concept of equating anti-capitalist movements to the core idea of let's just not be dicks to each other. Money is just a tool. It can be used to create amazing good, and it can also be used as an excuse to subjugate or justify unethical behavior. But in the end, it's just a tool and a made up one at that. Money has the value we attach to it, but no inherent value. So maybe we can start thinking about money as a tool to be kind to each other, to support one another, and to help create the change we want to see in the world. If you want to go a little bit deeper on money mindset or just join a conversation about money and business with some other business owners, come join me at the Dollars and Decisions Roundtable on January 14th at 2 p.m. Eastern. You can sign up at scalespark.co slash dollarsanddecisions or just click the link in the show notes. Break the Ceiling is produced by Yellow House Media. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. This episode was edited by Marty Seafeld with production assistance by Kristen Runbeck. 